Well, hi there. You're all very welcome. It's just gone half seven, so I thought we might start. My name is Declan Fitzmaurice, and this talk is on philosophy and free will. Now, the topic philosophy and free will is an absolutely enormous topic, and there is a very ancient and famous dilemma regarding free will, which you may or may not be aware of, and if you're not, you will be shortly. So we're going to have a look at free will. It does get a little bit technical in, in some respects. What we're going to do is look at some of the ideas about free will. And I'm going to try to see what sort of camp you're all in. Because the chances are you do hold a view one way or the other. And there are several camps, if you like. And they're all quite different. So we'll have a look and see where you would put yourself. But before we do that, there is quite a bit of terminology so we're going to have a look at some of the definitions first before we get into the discussion on free will. Is that okay? You don't really need to see this, uh, so I, I wouldn't worry about it too much. But it's on the flip chart there. Now, the talk is on philosophy and free will. And philosophy really is the love of wisdom. And free will, well, if you look up a dictionary, very often the definitions take several pages. But one, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary has a nice definition which says that free will is the freedom of humans to make choices that are not determined by prior causes or divine intervention. So essentially what they're saying is that the freedom of humans, so we're not talking about animals, to make choices, so you choose A or B or up or down, that are not determined by prior causes. So there's nothing that has happened before that has made you choose one or the other, or by divine intervention. It's not the unseen hand of God that pushed you down a particular route. But for you to have free will means you exercise the choice yourself, that you are in control. And freedom itself is really liberty, and to be free means not to be bound, or not to be constrained. So free means not bound, unconstrained, unattached, or not under arbitrary government. So if you say, I'm free, it means there's nothing else directing you, nothing determining which way you go. So, for example, when budget here recently, uh, you could ask the question, was the Irish government free to determine its own fiscal policy? Or was there some other agency with some influence or with ultimate control over what sort of budget it turned out and in that respect, you could ask the question, had Ireland got its sovereignty or had it lost its sovereignty? So that's what we're speaking about, freedom and sovereignty. Will is the power or faculty of choosing or determining. And it's to do with what I want, what I'd like, what my desire is. So you could say you have maybe a willful son or daughter. And what you would mean is they always do just what they want themselves. They never think of anybody else. They're very willful and you just can't change their mind. They will do it no matter what. And choice is always to do with options or alternatives. For example, you had a choice to come here tonight or not. And when the talk is over, you have a choice of what to do then. If there's a break, you have a choice with regard to having tea or coffee. So these are choices, all to do with options or alternatives. Reason, which we will endeavour to use, is the faculty of mind which determines the measure of truth in something, and it's to do with intellect. And we also come up with this word fate when we talk about free will. 
And fate, well, one nice definition of fate is inevitable destiny. And I like that one because it really doesn't leave room for any alternative. And then something that comes up quite a bit is, is related to the word determine. And determine means to limit or to fix or to settle. For example, if you're dealing with solicitors, they will speak about determining costs. So when all the business is done, they will work out how much time was spent and they will determine what the cost is. So that's to determine or to limit or fix or settle. Or if something is determined, then it is already limited or fixed or settled. Now, sometimes we use these words in not quite the correct way. We might say, I'm determined to go to bed at 11 o'clock tonight. Now, what you mean is, or what I mean is, I plan to go to bed at 11 o'clock or I intend to go to bed. And it might be 7 or 8 o'clock now. Now, invariably what happens at 11 o'clock is I end up not going to bed. So you can't really determine something in the future. You can only really determine something in the present. And there is this thing called predetermined as well, which means it was inevitably going to happen and it was never going to be any other way. And finally, there's the idea of cause and effect. And essentially, cause and effect says that for every action that you undertake now, that there will be an effect to come. Or for every effect that you become aware of now, that there was a prior action or a prior cause. So that's cause and effect. So when we get into the discussion, we'll refer to those terms quite a bit. Are you happy enough with those terms? They're all relatively familiar and simple enough to follow. Okay, so now a little bit about freedom. Well, Schopenhauer was once asked by the Norwegian Royal Academy of Sciences, I think, to answer a particular question with regard to free will. But his answer, if you like, took the form of an essay, which became quite a famous essay, on the freedom of the will. It was part of a bigger work, I think, called The Great Problem of Ethics. And essentially, he suggested that there were three types of freedom. Now, I'll put them into two categories, because one is physical and the other two are subtle. But there is this business of physical freedom. And physical freedom is related to actions or doing things. For example, would you say you are free to assemble? Do you have the right to assemble? So that would be a physical right. For example, we are all assembled here this evening. Is there a right to free speech? Okay, and is there a right to bear arms in Dublin at the moment? Not really. So that would be an example of a physical freedom which at the moment is restricted. But that's the area we're speaking about in the physical realm, relating to acting and doing things. The subtle freedoms would be moral and intellectual freedom. So moral freedom would mean that there is the absence of influence of motives over your actions. So that there were not some external motives that were making you behave in a certain way. So if you have moral freedom, you're able to determine your motives and your actions yourself. And intellectual freedom would be when the mind has clear knowledge of the motives to action and is free, for example, from passions or drugs. So if somebody was in a mad temper, for example, you couldn't say that they're being reasonable and responsible and they're free. They're overcome with a type of passion. Or if somebody's under the influence of drugs, similarly, you couldn't say that they're free. So they would be subtle freedoms. Now, there are other freedoms like political or religious freedom, which don't really have a bearing immediately on our discussion. So it brings us to the question, are we free? Do we have free will? So I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand 
if you think you have free will, for example, were you free to come here tonight? Or did somebody make you? And are you free to leave or free to go home? So do you think you have free will? If you could just raise your hand if you think you have free will. Okay, that's pretty much everybody. And anybody who thinks they don't have free will? You're just scratching your... Uh, okay, so we, we've won. Okay. You're not sure? Okay. So I, there's maybe 60 or 70 people here, and we have maybe two and a half who say uh, you don't have free will. Believe it or not, the few times I've given the talk, that seems to be about average in Ireland. It's about maybe one in 20 or 30 who think they don't have free will, and the other 29 or so think they do. Now, that's going to be important. It's important you answer that question, because when we come to the dilemma, you're going to have to decide whether you're going to stay there or move. So free will is the power or ability to freely exercise control over our actions or our choices. It's the ability to do one thing over another. So for us to be free, in any given moment, we must have the power or the ability to do A or to do something other than A, to do otherwise. Or for any action that we've already taken, for us to have been free then, it means that we could have done otherwise. Now, otherwise could mean doing A, or it could mean doing B or C, or it could mean not doing A at all, or even not doing anything. It's doing one thing or another, and the other could be anything. But free will would mean that what happens, whatever happens, essentially is up to us. So take this evening, for example, answer these questions as we go. Would you say you were free to come here tonight? You weren't forced into it. Okay. Were you free to choose to come? Yeah? And then having decided or chosen to come, you, you actually have made it here. And to prove it, here you are. And having come, are you free to listen to the talk? So you can either listen or you can go off into a daydream and we won't know, but you're free to do that. So that's a physical freedom where you choose to listen. And are you free to attend or to pay attention, if you like, and to consider the points that are made? So you could dismiss them out of hand or you could say, hold on, I'll have a think about that now for a minute. So you're free to do that? Okay. And having considered, are you free to understand it? And if you don't understand it, are you free to raise your hand and ask a question? You're free there. Okay. You're free there as well. And having understood, and maybe even asked a question, are you free to disagree or free to object to what has been said? Or if you object strongly, are you free to throw a shoe at me? <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting you do that, but are you free to do that? Yeah? Okay, so that's a very physical freedom. And are you free to leave? Even now, we've just barely started. Are you free to leave? Okay. And if you do leave, whenever that happens to be, are you free to have enjoyed the talk or have not enjoyed the talk? All right? And say you leave with a friend and they enjoy the talk and they say, I really enjoy that. Are you free to say, well, actually, I didn't. It was rubbish. Or vice versa. Okay. And then when you leave, are you free to go home, as you might have already planned, or go somewhere else? Maybe go to the pub or go for a walk. Okay. So pretty much in every respect with regard to coming here this evening and going home, you're saying you're free. So you have control, and this is the exercise of your free will, all those choices and decisions and actions. Is that okay? All right. So what you're doing then is you're firmly placing yourself in the camp of having free will. Okay. And do you like having that free will? Would you like not to have it? 
All right, so not only do you have free will, but you're also quite attached to it and you want to hold on to it. All right. Now, there is, in modern Western philosophy, there's a view that looks to action for the evidence of free will. And this view says that while feelings have a bearing, that these are caused by or arise in response to external circumstances. And as we are not responsible for our feelings, that this is not where free will is found. Free will is found at the exercise of choice in choosing how to respond or how to act in any situation. So, for example, if one of you were to approach me aggressively at the break, this view would say that my feelings of hostility would be expected and understandable and outside my control. But where I do have control is I don't have to punch you. So it's at the level of the physical response, which is where I have control or freedom. And here I am free. Now, I don't subscribe to the view, but it's useful to look at it. It's useful to look at what physical action is evidence of. For example, I said, to prove that you are free to come, you're actually here. And maybe that doesn't prove anything at all. For example, say you do raise your hand. What does that prove? Well, it might not prove anything. Putting your hand up could mean you genuinely have a question or you object. It could mean somebody poked you from behind. Or maybe there's a, a wasp in front of your face. It could mean a dozen things. Now, for some of these raising of the hand issues, we appear to be free, and some of them, maybe we don't appear to be free. Say, Niall came in and said, who owns 07D9346? If that's your car, what would happen? Your hand would go up. Yes. Now, would you say you're free to do that, or will that just happen? Oh, that's mine. What's wrong? Are you free? Or the hand will just go up? You could. And then you hear the alarm, and you smell the tires burning. And Now, anything could have happened to the car. Maybe it's stolen, maybe it's been broken into, maybe it's on fire. But putting one's hand up in response may not be free. It may be an automatic response. If a wasp flies at your face, it's a little bit more straightforward. The hand will definitely go up. So there are some instances where our actions are not caused by free will. They're automatic responses. And there are lots of actions in the body that are anything but free. Our digestive system, the circulation system, our breathing. These things just happen. We don't even know how they do happen. They're mechanical. So if some of these are not caused by free will, what do cause them? Well, this leads us into the realm of cause and effect. Is there such a thing as cause and effect? Temperature rise up here. So I experience a temperature rise. So what's the response? I try to turn down the heat. So would it happen that for no reason, particular reason at all, there would be a sudden rise in temperature somewhere? Or would there be a cause behind it? A cause. Now I've turned off the radiator. So what's going to happen? Yeah, this area is going to cool down, the radiator is going to get cool and it won't be so hot anymore. Are you happy that that's the way the world works? In my eight-year-old car, there's a real vibration in where the gear stick is. I don't know what's causing it all, but it's really annoying. So what am I going to do? 
I'm going to bring it to a mechanic. And what's he going to do? He's going to look for the cause, and then he's going to try and fix it. So radiators, temperature, cars, anything else that's governed by cause and effect. I would suggest pretty much everything. Mathematics, biology, physics, geology, nature. For example, is it true that you reap what you sow? So if you plant a daffodil bulb, for example, in the autumn, what will happen in spring if all the conditions are right? What flower will you get? Will you get a tulip or a rose? Why not? Because there's a cause and effect and there's this relationship that we just cannot break. It's inevitable. Now, there's a way not to get the daffodil if you poison the ground. There are lots of things you can do, but that's also subject to cause and effect. For example, you could go to a garden shop and say, I have lots of these weeds, I want to get rid of them. And the garden will tell you exactly what to use to get rid of them. The cause and effect. These are regulations governing our actions. For example, if we eat too much food and take too little exercise, what will happen? We get fat. Or if we eat too little food, what will happen? Undernourished. And is it right that that would be so? Would you prefer if it could happen that you have all the Big Macs and Black Forest Gatto that you like and never get fat or unhealthy? (laughs) Would you really like that to be so? Are you happy that there are these laws in the creation? Well, it is absolutely right that this would be so. And even if we're ignorant of these laws, do they still operate? They do. Even if we don't agree with them, do they still operate? They do. For example, we wouldn't jump off a building and say, I disagree with the law of gravity, so it's not going to work on me, and expect to float. Well, we could expect to, but it won't happen. The law of gravity will operate whether we're aware of it or not. I woke up one Sunday morning with a terrible hangover. Where did that come from? (laughs) Just came out of the blue. What do you think of that? But the hangover didn't come out of the room. It was caused by what I did the night before. Does that make sense? This actually came from Augustus de Morgan. And he was actually quoting Jonathan Swift. And he said, Great fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them. And little fleas have lesser fleas. And so ad infinitum. (laughs) And the great fleas themselves in turn have greater fleas to go on while these again have greater still, and greater still, and so on. Well, that's the whole business of cause and effect, because it wouldn't make sense for the prior cause of my current action to have had no cause itself. But how really do we treat this idea of cause and effect? If you get sick, what do you do? You go to the doctor. Why would you go to the doctor? Why wouldn't you go to the butcher? Why the doctor? Because he's been trained. And what would you go to the doctor and do? You'd ask him for a, you know, a prescription or something. And you take the prescription and you would hope that that prescription or that tablet would have a particular effect. And the effect would be to get rid of the pain in the arm or the head or whatever it happens to be. And if it doesn't, then there was something that wasn't quite understood about the disease or the cure. So we try another one. Isn't that what we do? So we're very, very attached to this idea of cause and effect. In fact, we base our lives on it. It's the reason we eat meals. It's the reason we wear certain clothes to have a particular effect. It could be fashion, it could be appearance, it could be the weather, it could be anything. 
It's even fun when we go to see, for example, a magician in a magic show. He does all these tricks that appear to have no cause, that the rabbit came out of nowhere. Now, we don't accept that a rabbit came out of nowhere, and it's fun because we just don't see the cause, but we know there is one. Is that so? And that's why it's great fun, because we know we just can't spot the cause. We never doubt for a minute that there is one. We know the lady doesn't get cut in two. We just don't know how he does it. We don't know the cause, but we know there is one. And we do look to the causes. For example, if we're out walking and we feel water, we would look up and see where are the clouds. And if it was a cloudless sky, we would try and figure out what's going on. We would look for some guy with a water pistol or something, but water just doesn't come out of nowhere for no reason. If we see smoke, we look for the fire. And this is in every aspect of life, even the current economic difficulties. So many people are trying to figure out where did it go wrong. I know we like to blame people too, but we do look for the cause. And we look for the cause so that in the future we can maybe avoid the same mistake or somehow correct this one a little bit quicker. All to do with cause and effect and regulation. Well, do we think that cause and effect is true? Think that that's the way the world operates? Well, if you think that, that things have prior causes which determine them, then... I'm going to give you a hat to wear now. You are a determinist, okay? So you think that whatever happens now has been determined by some prior cause. And this is absolutely true in the physical level. What about the subtle level? Is this true in the subtle level as well, the realm of thoughts and feelings? So if, for example, we feed on negativity and criticism internally, what would be the result? There will be an effect, won't there? There will be an effect, and the effect will be on my own psyche or personality or attitude, or I'll get fed up and depressed, and I'll snap at my friends, and then I'll lose my friends, and then I'll criticize myself even more, and them, and that's how it goes. Or we can do it to other people. We can sow doubt in the minds of others, because we know what has an effect. Maybe there's someone we don't like, and we say, I wouldn't have worn that dress with those trousers or something, or I wouldn't have done it that way. Just a tiny little seed of that, and just pass on knowing that chances are that could eat that person up for the rest of the day. And then we'll get one back the next day in, in, in turn. But if somebody comes to us and they're fed up, they're down in the dumps, what would we do? Could we help them? They are depressed. It's this person who's been feeding on criticism and negativity. Well, what would we do? Would you take them into a room and watch back-to-back episodes of EastEnders or listen to funeral music? Or, or would you say, come on, let's go out, let's go for a walk, let's go for a swim? Where's the dog? Let's play with the dog. Would you, would you do something like that? Why would you do that? I suggest you would do that because you know it's going to have a particular effect at the subtle level. It will lift their spirits. And there are very, very strong parallels between the physical realm and the subtle realm. We t- talk about people having their head in the clouds. Or to get them back, we tell them to get their feet back on the ground. We do this to our children. If your, if your child is going into an exam and the child says, Oh... I'm in trouble here, I'm really worried, I'm going to fail, I'm no good, I'm rubbish at this. What would we say? Would we say, you stupid thicky, that's because you didn't study. We wouldn't say that because that will have a particular effect. We will say, oh listen, you've worked very hard and you're brilliant, you'll be well able. Why would we give them praise and encouragement? Because of the effect it can have. And it can have a huge effect. A thought can make you physically sick or better. If somebody throws you something, if I throw a tennis ball 
And if you have a chance to think about it and everybody's watching, oh, I'm going to drop it, what is likely to happen? You're likely to drop it. These laws are very, very strong and very powerful. And we do know a lot about these laws. Our subtle aspect, through thoughts and feelings, is also caused by prior causes. What we did today, what sort of thoughts we fed on, what sort of company we kept. Even the thoughts you're having right now about this talk, they will have been greatly influenced by what you've been doing up to now. What you've engaged your mind in. Our actions are determined by the situation, our environment, our childhood, our genes, our habits, our parents, our mood, our reflexes. So all of this is cause and effect. And are you happy that this is a fair description of the world? Okay, by and large, yes. Now, if the world is subject to laws, to the law of cause and effect, it is therefore deterministic. And if we think that's true, then we are determinists. So, now we have this position where we have free will and we have cause and effect or determinism. Now, remembering that free will means I'm in control of what happens and nothing else. And the cause and effect and determinism means it's already been determined by all the things that have happened up to now. Okay? So, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think these two views are compatible? They're not compatible. Okay. I'm going to give you another hat to put on because if you think these two views are not compatible, you are now an incompatibilist. Okay? I've yet to find somebody who says they are compatible. So, now, if we hold that we have free will and it's incompatible with cause and effect, what are you going to do? Your position is untenable. You've said that it's not valid to believe in free will, that you have control, and at the same time, to want the doctor and the tablets to have their lawful effect as well. So what are you going to do? Are you going to surrender free will? Or are you going to surrender your cause and effect, your lawful creation? Yes, that's what we tend to do. For some reason, we just don't want to surrender this free will. We're very, very attached to it. So you get another hat. You know what your hat is? If you're an incompatibilist, who won't relinquish free will, you're now a libertarian. Okay? Now, there's only a couple of hats uh, to go, so this is it. So if you stay with free will, you're a libertarian. And actually, if you said, no, after all, I'll relinquish free will, I'll go with cause and effect, you would be a hard determinist. So they're all the hats you have to put on. And we can only wear one at a time. But we'll see what happens. This will cover what you're going to ask about now. So, if we are incompatibilists and hold to the principle of free will, then we're saying we have freedom or liberty and we're libertarians. So libertarians are incompatibilists who believe they're free. Now what's the consequence of this? Well, we do this because we're not happy to surrender the idea that we have free will. And we are natural libertarians. We believe we are in charge of what happens. There are laws and influences, but ultimately I think I'm in control of my actions and my destiny. And free will certainly is very important. It's not surprising I don't want to relinquish it. It's very linked to moral responsibility. It's the basis of our legal system. 
Once we're not a minor or insane or under duress, then we have a legal responsibility for our actions. In democracy, we hold free elections. Otherwise, what would be the point if they weren't free? Before we get married, we're asked, have you come here of your own free will? Even the idea of sin is that we had a choice. We freely chose to do evil. We knew what we were doing, we knew it was wrong, and we did it anyway, and that would make it a sin. And moral responsibility is fundamental to society as we know it. In fact, it depends on there being free will. So it is not surprising we won't let go. However, it does present a problem. If we do hold to free will, then we're saying that causal determinism isn't true. That somehow it has its influences, but it doesn't affect control over what happens. And if causal determinism isn't true, if the creation isn't subject to law, subject to cause and effect, then it would be random. And how would we feel about that? So the doctor gives you a tablet, but he has no idea what effect it's going to have. Or you eat a biscuit and you don't know whether it's going to make you feel more full or less full. You put on a sweater and you get colder or warmer. So we would not at all be happy in a world that was random. Would that be fair to say? In fact, if things were random, would anything have control? If there was no cause and effect and things were random, there would be no free will. Because we wouldn't have control either, because there would be all these random effects in the creation. With both causal determinism and random chance, our actions would just be happenings. They'd be occurrences or blind motions. They wouldn't be actions at all. They'd be reactions or random events. Now the challenge of causal determinism not being true, this random world is just not appealing. It's not attractive. It's not conceivable. Scientists, astrophysicists who use the laws of physics and quantum mechanics and so on, astronomers can tell by the way a star twinkles about 50 zillion miles away, they can tell you whether it's turning left or right or whether it has a, a few planets or whether it has a, a sister star somewhere else. It's incredible what they can tell. And they are having some trouble at the moment because, you know, the Large Hadron Collider in Zurich, where they're smashing all sorts of particles off each other. Now, there's some particles they know exist and they're trying to find them. But in all their smashing of particles, what they're finding is there is some behavior of particles and subatomic particles that appears to be random and is causing a big, big problem because science can't do random. Even tossing a coin isn't random. If you know how hard to flick it, you can get it right every time if you just know the laws. So random isn't good. Now, they suspect they just haven't found the laws yet that govern these behaviours. And you will find that even in the behaviour of your friend. You will say, she just went off on a tangent for no apparent reason. And later on, you found out that somebody said something to her that explains everything. Doesn't that happen? So sometimes we just don't know the laws yet. Now, in summary, we believe we have free will. And we believe that the world is lawful. So we're causal determinists. And we believe that these two are incompatible. So we're incompatibilists. And yet, we hold to free will, so we are libertarian. Is that where we, by and large, find ourselves? You don't know how you're going to get out of this, but you don't want to relinquish this or this. What do we do now? 
So how can we look to resolve this dilemma or look for an error? Well, this dilemma, if you like, I would suggest is a paradox by nature. I was given a very early lesson in this when I was quite young. We were going to visit my cousin who was a theologian in Maynooth. And my older brother persuaded me to ask a question. We hadn't met a theologian before and we were trying to think of some good theological questions for him. Now this was the same brother who years later persuaded me to order a bottle of Chateaubriand at a meal, which is actually a meat dish. So I should have known. Anyway, he asked me to ask the theologian, could God make a stone so heavy he couldn't lift it? Okay? Now I forgot about it until I started to do some work on the talk here. But that does explain, if you like, or it introduces the nature of the dilemma. And to put it a little bit more succinctly, that paradox is called what happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object. When an irresistible force meets an immovable object. And we call that a paradox because there's no way out. On the one hand, you have this irresistible force, which nothing can stop, and it meets this immovable object, which nothing can move. And we know that only one thing can come out on top. Something has to be sovereign. Something has to happen. And we don't know how to resolve that. And I would suggest that that is, in essence, the nature of this dilemma of free will. We want two independent authorities. And we want them both to be sovereign. We're not happy to relinquish either. And we don't know how to get out of that. Now, reason or common sense will tell us that it is not true that there are two in charge, that there are two independent powers. Only one can be sovereign. This will be evident in every situation. You cannot serve two masters. Sovereign means the person or the one in charge. Not many, but one. So is Ireland in charge of its financial decisions or is the EMF? We can't both be in charge. Ultimately, somebody will call the shots. Now, I would suggest that where there is a paradox, there is somehow an error. Paradoxes can't be resolved because there is an error somewhere. So where then is the error? Well, I would suggest that the error is in our understanding, if you like, of the question. The question being, which comes out on top, cause and effect or determinism, or free will. So, what we do is we express this dilemma, if you like, by saying the world is lawful, subject to cause and effect, so causal determinism is true, and we, being of this world and subject to the same laws, also want to have an independent power or control over our actions. Now, the bit that we kind of miss that's presumed in there is the bit where we say we are of this world. That's kind of an unstated assumption in there. Now, in fact, the two presumed authorities, the world and me, are not of the same kind. Things are not as they appear. We are not what we appear. And I would further propose that what we really want, it's not free will, what we really want is freedom from misery, freedom from bondage, freedom from attachment. Now, there's an ancient philosophical proposition which can be found in virtually every tradition and religion, if we look for it, which suggests that we are more than of this world. We're beyond this creation. For example, Christ said, ye are the life of the world. He didn't say, 
you are the world. You're the light of the world, which is a different order. So the light illuminates the world. And therefore we end up, or begin, an inquiry into who am I? And I would suggest, unless we can answer this, there will be no answer to the dilemma of free will. The common view is that I'm what you see. I'm my body. I'm 45, 5 foot 11, overdrawn or bankrupt, sitting here in my blue jumper or whatever I wore today, or I'm a car theft victim. I'm in good form. I'm in bad form. My personality as well. I'm a funny guy or I'm a quiet, reserved sort of chap. But it's this individual that wants free will. And it's this individual who won't relinquish it, even in the face of an untenable position which we have. Well, this is, in fact, the ego. And the essence of ego is attachment and identification. But the true freedom would be freedom from attachment and identification. Freedom from the ego itself. Shantananda Saraswati said, Duality arises when two independent powers are presumed to exist. But in the light of true knowledge, no trace of duality can be found. Now this physical realm, the realm of action, is actually the least substantial. And it is governed by physical laws. And there is no freedom from these laws. If we take the tablet, it will have an effect. But we're not our physical bodies. We're much more. The subtle realm, the realm of thoughts and ideas and feelings, they come with the mind and the heart. And these are very substantial. But these two are subject to their laws. And similarly, there is no freedom from these laws as well. But we are much more than mind and heart. The freedom from the laws governing the heart and mind, see if we have a... There would be a statement, if you like, of one of the laws at the subtle level, which is from the Gita. And it says, when a man dwells on the objects of sense, so when the mind dwells on something, oh, I love that, I want that, he creates an attraction for them. Attraction develops into desire, and desire breeds anger. Anger induces delusion, delusion loss of memory. Through loss of memory, reason is shattered, and loss of reason leads to destruction. That's strong stuff. But that's the type of laws that operate at this very substantial, subtle level. These are all of the creation and subject to and bound by its laws, body, mind and heart. We, in truth, are not. We, in truth, are the self and we are of a different kind to the creation. We are pure, perfect, complete and free. We're free from bondage to all the laws, and in truth we're free from misery and free from the ego. We're independent. We don't depend on anything. George Bernard Shaw, was he was asked by the, the hostess at a particularly dull party once if he was enjoying himself, and he said it was the only thing he was enjoying. Now, I, I suspect that he knew something of this independence, for you don't depend on anything else. And that is the nature of the self. This passage continues, if you like, with the anger and delusion and destruction. 
it gives you the way out, thankfully. It says, The self-controlled soul who moves among sense objects free from either attachment or repulsion, he wins eternal peace. And having attained peace, he becomes free from misery. And that's the way out. The sage Ashtawakra said, Verily, by nature, thou art consciousness absolute. Do not harbour narrowness of heart and think thyself to be otherwise. Now I think that's really great because he tells us the truth about ourselves and he also tells us what the solution is. The problem is we harbour narrowness of heart and we think ourselves to be otherwise. And this is in the realm of the heart and mind which is this phenomenally large subtle level. So what can we do in any given moment? What can we do to be free from this? How can we not harbour narrowness of heart and think ourselves to be otherwise? How can we be this self, which in fact is free? Well, we can only do it in any given moment. The past, obviously, it's too late and the future hasn't happened. We can only do it now. So how can we do this? What must we do? There was a, a cork man called John Philpot Curran and he wrote about the right to election of the Lord Mayor of Dublin. And he said it is the common fate of the indolent to see their rights become prey to the active. The condition upon which God hath given liberty to man is eternal vigilance. That's what he said. Very famous quotation. Now we know that in lots of forms. The early bird catches the worm and first up best dressed and so on. But he put it really, really well. Now indolent means kind of lazy or lethargic or half asleep. Now eternal vigilance is a tall order. It's quite a discipline. But we're told that the wise man treads the path of discipline. And it may seem strange that discipline could lead to freedom. But there we are. This is what we must practice. So in any given moment, when we're faced with the situation and a choice of A or B, what do we choose? Well, the tendency when we're faced with a particular situation is to answer along the lines of, what would I like? What do I want? What would suit me? What do I want to get out of this? What way do I want things to go? That's how we tend to respond. If we do that, we're following desire. So the desire is my will, what I want, pleasure or gain for me or for mine. It could be me, it could be me and my mates or my family. And it's all due to attachment, attachment to whatever it is I desire or to a particular result. So hence we have the mind dwelling upon the objects of sense, which leads to destruction. The effect of doing what I want, apart from complete destruction, is that it breeds desire and also habit. What happens if you do something repeatedly? Well, you get very good at it, don't you? It, it almost becomes second nature. So if we make a habit of responding to things out of what I want, my desire, that will become habitual. And if I end up responding habitually, would you say I'm free? So what responding out of desire leads to 
is loss of freedom. So that can't be the way to go. So what do we do then in any given moment? Now, we're told what the, the penalty of this is by John Curran as well. He said, it is the common fate of the indolent to see their rights become prey to the active. The condition upon which God hath given liberty to man is eternal vigilance, which condition, if he break, servitude is at once the consequence of his crime and the punishment of his guilt. So he's saying the instant you drop your guard, you're fair game for pretty much anybody who wants to take advantage of you, and you're now in servitude. And when you're in servitude, would you say you're free? You have lost your freedom. And that is how it is necessary to have eternal vigilance. So, in any given moment, what should I do? I don't want to be in servitude. I don't want to be governed by desire or habit. I want to be free. What should I do? Well, let's look in any given moment and see where we do have choice. So, in any given moment, we'll take it in four elements. In any given moment, would you say you have any freedom or control over how things got like this? It's clear that you don't. In that moment, how things got like this, it's over and done. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Okay, so we don't have freedom there. What about what's in front of you right now? So you open a door and some scene is presented to you. So in that moment, have you any freedom or control over what is presented to you? Now you did have ten minutes ago, or you could have had if you were awake. But in the moment, we don't. Okay. What about how I face what's in front of me? Or how I respond to what's in front of me? Have I any freedom or control there? You're all saying yes to that. Now what about how things turn out? Have I control over how things actually turn out? No, because there are so many other influences. You have an influence but not control. Is that okay? So, it would appear in any given moment that the only area where we potentially have any control or freedom is in how we face what's in front of us. And this really comes down to our attitude. So our attitude could be positive or negative. It could be fight or flight. Now, if we have a predetermined attitude of flight, for example, if we're presented with an awkward situation, we will tend to flee. But we don't have to. How I face this is up to me. Now, who is responsible for our feelings? Can you blame anybody else for your feelings? If anybody was to blame, who would it be? Yourself. So if you take responsibility for your feelings and you see a situation that's presented to you as it is and you're wide awake, you're not indolent, how does that leave you? Are you free to respond? Now we do know what effect negative feelings have. This is what Patanjali said about negative feelings. If you want to harbour negative feelings, it's quite strong. He said negative feelings such as violence, are damaging to life whether we act upon them ourselves or cause or condone them in others. They are born of greed, anger or delusion. They may be slight, moderate or intense. 
their fruit is endless ignorance and suffering. And he said to remember this is to cultivate the opposite. So in any given moment, if you know that you can lose your temper or not, if you lose your temper, what's going to happen? Will you be free and in control? Absolutely not. So that's the effect of negative feelings. Now he's giving us a hint of what the way out is. And he didn't say cultivate positive feelings. Because if you always have a happy kind of positive attitude to everything, are you free? You may be positive and outgoing and so on, but are you free? You may be bound to this kind of gregarious attitude you have to everything. It doesn't mean freedom. And interestingly, Patanjali doesn't say cultivate an attitude of positivity. He says to remember this law is to cultivate the opposite. Now, with regard to feelings, our friend John Curran said something about that as well, about with regard to who is responsible for our feelings. He said, assassinate me you may, intimidate me you may not. Now, what he's saying there is, you can shoot me if you want, but in terms of it, intimidating me, that bit is up to me. So it's the up to me bit that allows me to be free insofar as it's possible. And this being responsible for your own feelings and your attitude is critical because otherwise we would be bound and we couldn't change anything. That what happens next bit would be out of our control. But you can choose the alternative to A and A is commonly the path of desire and habit and preference. So what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is the selfless option. It's where I don't do what I want where I drop my desire, or where I drop my habitual response. And when I drop that, I'm no longer operating out of my will. It's no longer what I want. So what do we respond to? Well, Mother Teresa, when she was asked about her plans, said she didn't have one. She said it was God's plan, not hers. And there's lots of emphasis on this in Scripture, where people surrender, if you like, what they want, and they do what needs to be done. And I would suggest you have all done that at some stage. You've given somebody a lift who you didn't like or where it was out of your way. Or you've asked somebody, would you like anything in the shops? You've just helped somebody because they were in trouble, not because there was anything in it for you. And that's a completely different order of action. And it's nothing to do with what you want. It's nothing to do with your will. This red rag to a bull business, you have no choice if you're a bull if you're bound to the nature, if you like, of a bull. But we, being beyond the nature of body, mind and heart, aren't bound. It's ego that wants free will, and it's ego that can never have it. So the surrender of the ego is effectively the surrender of free will. And I would suggest that the only valid exercise of free will is the surrender of it. And that in doing that, it will free you from the attachment and identification of the ego to everything in the creation, and it will leave you connected with your true nature, which is itself already free. So I'm happy to leave the talk there. If you'd like to take a very well-deserved break for some refreshments, and we can maybe resume in 20 minutes, if you have any questions. Well, what I said was I would suggest that the only valid exercise of free will is the surrender of it. 
It's put nicely by Shantananda Saraswati, who he mentioned earlier. So with regard to what do you do in the moment, he said, it is therefore necessary to visualize the true will of the Absolute and act accordingly in full consideration of the universe transcending all limitations. It is therefore necessary to use one's intelligence, so use your reason, your powers of reason, to visualize the true will of the Absolute. And that is what needs to be done right now. What needs to be done right now could be take a break, go to bed, ring your mum, could be anything. And act accordingly. So you can't just think about it, you have to do it. In full consideration of the universe, which means you take the widest view possible, you don't just throw the rubbish over the wall into the neighbor's garden. You think of them as well. and Think of the community. Think of the society. Think of the nation. In full consideration of the universe, transcending all limitations. It might not be easy. But it's possible to transcend limitations. Sometimes you can end up saying no when it's the hardest thing in the world to say. But you can still say it. So I would suggest that that is the real exercise of free will, where you surrender the ego and you do what needs to be done. Is that okay? So how about that break? All right. Thank you. But thank you all for coming back. Hope you had a nice refreshment break. And if there are any questions, feel free. The one question I'd like to ask is, a bit like gravity, is nature, instinct. You know, man's instinct. They say nature breaks out through the eyes of a cat. Well, man's instinct is a bit like gravity. It's, you know, driving him forward the whole time. And it, it determines a lot of how he thinks. It does. And line with that is the propagation of the race, the way the thing was designed. So was that an overriding drive, if you like, overriding free will? No, that would be part of the law of creation or the law of the universe. If there wasn't this instinct for reproduction and to propagate the species and so on, there would be no successive generations. Richard Dawkins is a big proponent of this at the moment with the idea of natural selection where anything that we do, if it supports our survival, if you like, as a species and our reproduction, then it will be adopted into the nature, if you like, of the species. So whatever is useful will be taken on board and that's all very lawful to the degree that natural selection is true. At the personal level, there are lots of instincts that have an effect. There might be an instinctive reaction to things like fire or certain types of food. You might have an allergy or something, which would be kind of an inbuilt reaction. Maybe you're allergic to fish. And, but there will be a lot of our behaviours that we might think are instinctive, but they're really habitual. We've cultivated them over years. So maybe, for example, maybe we don't like singing in public or something like that. So we always avoid it and we've managed to get away with it for a long time. After a while, as soon as anybody starts singing a song, we go into the next room in case we're asked. So that might not be instinctive, that might be an acquired second nature, that might not be helpful. So there are lots of things that we do instinctively that aren't to our benefit. We could instinctively go for the last roll or the last after eight, but it might not be the best thing to do. But certainly there are instincts, but I wouldn't say they override everything else, but they're part of nature, if you like, with a capital N. And they have their place and they have their effect, but at their level, 
and the level is the level of the physical world, if you like, and the subtle world that's behind it. That's at a different order to what the wise men and women speak about when they tell us we are consciousness absolute, for example, or we're the light of the world. So that's the difference in order, difference in kind. Is that okay? Are we working off the base that we're taking for granted that we all have a soul, that we're more than what you see? Well, you don't have to take it for granted. You can inquire into it. Mm -hmm. And I kind of hinted at it in the talk where we start with this idea of free will, where I want free will. So usually the focus is on free will and how I get it and whether I get it and how that might be in opposition to a regulated, ordered world. But the philosophical question really says, fair enough, the world is as it is, and you talk about this free will, I know, but just go back a step and say, who is this I who has or who wants free will or who thinks it has free will? A lot of the philosophers would have that approach and they nearly won't answer any questions about the world at all or anything about will. They say, who's asking the question? Raman Maharshi was famous for that. He was a saint in India. Virtually, no matter what question you went to him with, he'd say, who's asking the question? Because his idea was, you wouldn't get anywhere until you knew who you really were. And this would be present in a lot of traditions. In the early Greek tradition, the statement over reference to the Delphic oracle was, know thyself. So that, if you like, would be the first question of philosophy. And the, the proposition would be, until we have a go at that question and try and answer it, we won't really get anywhere with free will, or even in the creation, we'll be missing something. So it's a good place to start, and you don't have to presuppose anything. Just start with an open mind and say, who am I? Or what am I? And so you might start, for example, with, well, I'm this body. So if you look at it and ask the question, for example, the body could be different now to what it was 10, and 20, 30 years ago, but it's still the same me. So what would that mean? If the body changes, but I don't change, that could mean I'm not the body. That could be the type of inquiry that you could undertake. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and that's really up to you. You could take that as far as you like. And some people take it all the way. I just want to ask you, if we look at the world and the state that it's in, it seems that we're not becoming more conscious, we're actually going the opposite way. And I'm wondering, where do you think it's going towards our an evolution or you know if you live 70 years or 80 years by the time you become conscious you part conscious you mean when you're 75 or, and, and it all makes when sense it's only so much time to become conscious and then whether it's the learning that you learn is transferred to the kids or... yes well tragically I don't think it's transferred to the kids a lot of it is and we can help them but I think this kind of philosophical or spiritual endeavour is a very personal thing and you could drag 50 people to a talk like this and they could hate it and just want to leave whereas somebody who comes on their own volition if you like might hear some little thing in it that is of, of interest to them so I think it's a very personal thing so it's kind of a personal journey with regard to which way things are going like if you just if you turn on the news every day it's just yes. like things are just getting worse not getting worse. that's true in terms of what you hear on the news but They've tried several times good news programs and nobody watches them. They don't want to know how many cats were saved and people got home safely after being out. You might hear about a plane crash and you, you kind of are listening for how many people died. And the more people that died, the bigger the tragedy and the more interesting. So there is that element. But there's a very strong force in the creation which does drag things down. And in physics and science, it's called entropy. I don't know if you've heard of this. And it's the idea that things descend to the lowest possible common level. 
So, for example, if you pile a stack of bricks in here, they'll tend to fall down until they're all at the lowest possible level. And if you leave things to their own devices, they kind of will tend to fall down. And that's a very strong force in economics, in human nature. If you read something like Lord of the Flies, you know, the book, William yeah, Golding, yeah. where things deteriorated. So that's a very, very strong force in the world or in the creation. But at the same time, there's another force where we do like things to be neat and tidy and we do have this urge to make things better and refine things and maybe create and improve. There's that urge as well. So in any given moment, how things are going depends on the play of those two forces. There's a story in the Native American tradition where they, some wise Indian chief is, is talking to his son and he tells him about these two wolves that are having a, a battle and there's the good one and the bad one and the black one and the white one. And the son wants to know which one wins. And the dad says, whichever one you feed. So practical philosophy always brings it back to the personal level. So it's really down to whatever I indulge in, you know, when I'm on my own or when I have a bit of time. You know, do I do something destructive or do I try and do something creative? Do I sweep the path or do I dump litter around? It comes down to the personal level and all those things added together will have an effect at the level of society. So the cumulative effect really is largely influenced by what most people are doing. But you could have one saint in a community that can have an amazing effect. You see, you hear about these three friars gone into the, you know, one of the roughest parts of Limerick. You know, the great friars or something. That's an amazing thing to do. And I can't imagine the effect that that would have and how many negative effects that could counter, you know, by just a, an influence like that. So it's really down to us, down to what we do. I just meant, like, in a general sense, you know, with the world itself, we've come to the stage now where changing the planet, even the atmosphere and the temperature and all, and it's like, as a global thing, the whole population of the world, full consciousness of the world. Well, if you go to the planetary scale, I live in Armagh, and I know quite a few of the observers there, the astrophysicists and the astronomers, and they tell me all the time about how the Earth is slowing down, its rotation is slowing down, everything it gradually slows down, it takes a, an incredibly long time, but things do slow down. It's the nature of things in the universe. Things do slow down and they do run down. But you can live in your own golden age, no matter how stone age things might be around you. You can always choose to have your own golden age and try and follow the straight and narrow, as it were. Okay. It's a personal thing. It's our own personal efforts. And we're not limited at all by what's going on around us. We don't have to join in. Just on the last part of your talk, you were saying, as I recall, that the only thing to be done with free will was to surrender it. Yes. And I can see that to a large part of my day, there is no free will in the sense that I'm operating out of habit or emotions or whatever. But in between clear moments, no matter what you do, even if you think you're suppressing your own desires, it's still your own choice or you're the one that has to make the decision anyway. So isn't that still free will, even if it's only a small part of your day? Yeah, to the degree that we could have free will... It's in that moment where we choose to go the route of the habitual and the personal desire or the alternative. That's the point, if you like, that we have free will. And you'll find that whether we're aware of it or not, we do exercise that in, in any moment. We do exercise that choice. And, but very often we go the way of habit and fear and doubt and preconceptions we have and ideas and so on. And they determine what we do and what we say. But every once in a while, we don't give in to that, if you like. We rise above that and we do what needs to be done. So it could be at a very basic level. You could be making a cup of tea. You can ask the other three lazy bones sitting in the sitting room watching the TV, would they like one or not? Just make one for yourself. Yeah, I mean, so that is free will. Free will is available even though it's not something we avail of very much of the time. Well, the choice is available to make our own cup of tea or make a cup of tea for everybody, or at least ask them. 
but it's nothing to do with the tea really it's down to whether we're working at the personal level or whether we've surrendered that personal desire and we're meeting a greater need or the common good so that's the choice really it's nothing to do with the tea or the holiday or the movie that you might choose to go to Okay, like, so whatever the choice is, whether it's a choice not to, to go with your personal desire or not, it still seems like free will to me, though. It does seem like that, and that's kind of the trap. You might think that you have the free will to make your own cup of tea only and stuff those others because they never asked me what I like one for the last 20 times. They had a cup of tea, and they even try to hide the cup of tea and they close the door, all sorts of crazy things. So we think we have free will, and that when we make a cup of tea just for ourselves alone, that we're exercising that free will. But what all the sages, all the wise men and women tell us is that's not free will. That, that's a trap. You're heading down the route of desire and habit and bondage. You're no longer free. But if I'd made a choice to make tea for everybody, would I have exercised free will? Depends why you made it. Interestingly, it's nothing to do with the tea. You might ask them because you want to be loved or you, you want them to think you're great or you want them to make you one the next time or because you want to see what they're watching. Or There could be a dozen reasons. It's not the tea. It's what your motivation is, or your Bahawana in Sanskrit. Shantananda Saraswati said, that's the only place you have freedom, is your Bahawana, your attitude, your motivation. You could go on the missions. You could go to Africa for a year on the missions to help the starving children, and it might not be for them. It could be a very, very selfish thing to do. Maybe you're bored, or you've no job, or you want to improve your CV, or you want to appear great, or maybe you feel guilty about something and you're trying to clear a debt. It could be a dozen reasons, but it might not be for them. I don't believe we find the freedom in the action when we look at it. The freedom is internally, and it's whether we're doing our own thing or what needs to be done. Christ, for example, said on a number of occasions, Thy will, not mine. And you'll find that in lots of traditions where the greatest of men and women, they just surrender their desire completely and they just do what needs to be done. And amazing things happen. It's just in relation to what this lady here was saying. I'm a bit confused. You were saying that free will and cause and effect are not compatible. But I asked, were they? And, and we sort of came to the conclusion that they weren't? Everybody says they're not. Right, and so cause and effect was the way it is, really. So my question is, if we have free will, and you're suggesting that we surrender it, what's the point in having it in the first place? Well, what I said was to the extent that we have free will, I would suggest the only valid exercise of it was the surrender of it. One of the quotations in this sheet, I didn't get a chance to speak about him, but there was a, a man called Wee Wei Kananda who went to the United States, some amazing speeches, and he spoke about free will. And he says there is no such thing as free will. It's a contradiction of terms. If you're doing what you will, it's, it's your desire. It's not free. So they would suggest that at that level, there is no free will. Once you think you're exercising it, you're trapped. You're caught up in this ego. And the essence of ego is attachment. And our early definitions, if you like, of freedom was free from attachment. So once you give in to this ego and all its works and preferences and desires, you're no longer free. You're bound to that. Now, you might think getting the, the cup of tea for yourself alone or whatever it happens to be is the exercise of your free will because you get the cup of tea. It's nothing to do with the tea. Because that just sets you up the next time for repeating that and satisfying desire or habit, going down the personal route. So it becomes my will, not thine, or my will, not the needs of the world. It doesn't have to be a religious thing. Even if we look around and see who needs help. So that's where it happens. I just want to take back to something very simple. You know, okay. forget the other people in the other room. This may sound very selfish now. Just something very simple. You're on your own and you decide to go for a walk. Is that not free will? 
It depends why you go for the walk. It could be sitting on the couch air. and deciding to go to bed. It's your attitude. It's, it's the reason, if you like, for you doing what you do. You could go for a walk because you want to check out the neighbours. No, no, you, forget nothing to do with it. Depends why else. you go for the walk. Exercise and enjoy the air. That's fine. If that's what's needed yeah. and there's no personal agenda, then that's perfect. And that is free will. Well, that's the exercise of it. So you're doing what's needed. You're not doing what you want. I'm not doing what's needed. It's not necessary. But well, in that moment, what is necessary? What is needed most of all in that moment? For sure. That's perfect. A good test of it is if you try to do something and your efforts are frustrated and you get angry, okay? Yeah. That's the hallmark, if you like, of ego. So you were attached to this idea of going for a walk and because something got in your way, you're now upset and okay. angry I, and all of a sudden you're sliding down the yeah, slippery slope. Yeah, I can slope. understand that. Yeah. So the alternative would be a walk is needed. So you go to go for a walk, but as soon as you open the door, there's Mary from next door yeah, who yeah. wants to come yeah, in for yeah. a 20-minute no, chat and yeah, eat all your biscuits. Yeah. So your intention, if you like, to go for the walk because that's what was needed, yeah. if you weren't attached to it, you'd be very happy to drop it because there's now a new situation. Now what's needed? Now you have to choose between Mary and the yeah, walk. Yeah. A minute ago it was TV oh, yeah, and the yeah. walk. Well, I can see how yours and other people affect, you know, there is, there is a... a but so if you, in, if in you that moment... Peacefully, without any agenda as such. The agenda, that's the key. If you have no agenda, then it's perfect. You're not exercising free will, you're doing what's needed. What happens is, if you undertake an action because it's needed, you'll find you're not developing or cultivating the ego. It's nothing to do with attachment or desire. Anything that you do that's driven by attachment or desire cultivates and builds up this ego to the point where you'll be attached to your walk because you always go for a walk on Tuesdays. And all of a sudden, that's now part of the ego. You're identified with it. You're attached to it. And woe betide anybody who tries to stop your Tuesday walk. So that's where it ends up. If there's attachment or identification, trouble isn't far away. But if you're just meeting the need, then you're free. You could have only started the walk and you might have to turn around and go back home because something more important needs to be done. You might remember you meant to do something else. Why does it have to be a need? Somebody stops her on the way out. She's also free to bring that person in. It won't affect her one way or the other. Well, she may be or she may not be. I may have an attitude to people who meet me on my walk. I may not stop for anybody. <laughs> no. Or I may stop for everybody because I love to chat. <laughs> or it may depend on how you look. If you look scruffy and unshaven and rough and smelly, I may not stop at all. I may walk faster. So what we think are these freedoms, you just can't tell by the action. You can't tell by the action. You can only tell in the moment and how you respond. It's your response. And it's down to whether the response is free from attachment or bound to some attachment or idea or desire. For example... You may not have hit it yet. What time is it? It's uh, 25 past nine. There may be some idea here that you've got to be home for 10 o'clock. Now, you may think you're free to go home whenever you want, but come five to ten and the last bus is just about to leave, you may not be at all free. You could be tortured. You could be halfway out the door. You, you could be doing anything. So the freedom is in the moment with regard to how you face things and how you deal with things. And all the sages tell us the only way to be free is to surrender that desire and do something else instead that isn't personal, no agenda. Not easy, but I don't believe you've never done it. I suspect everybody has done it and does it. I mean, you see mothers or fathers plating the dinner and you take the worst cut of meat and the burnt potatoes and everything goes on, on your plate because you want to take the worst. Do you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you eat the worst of the food and give the best to others? And you kind of hide it with the jug of milk and the mustard and 
so they can't see and make an issue of it. We do this every day. I suspect we do, or we would be absolute demons all the time, as opposed to just some of the time. What I would suggest, according to these great men and women, is that heading down the route of personal desire leads to trouble, and dropping personal desire, surrendering it, leads to freedom. But everybody, as human beings, we're all in pursuit of happiness, you'll agree. So if we lose, all lose our desire for happiness, we are not fulfilling our birthright. Because it is indeed our birthright to seek happiness and peace. Well, that may be so, that we may all crave happiness because it's our nature, but what happens is we think happiness is to be found in a personal cup of tea. Supposing we don't. Supposing we don't think that. Well, it depends wherever happiness is to be found. The, The laws will bear their fruit. Happiness will be found in certain areas. And these wise men and women say happiness will only be found when we connect with everybody and drop the personal agenda There's a quotation, Verily the man who sees himself in all creatures and all creatures in himself knows no sorrow. It's when we connect at a much bigger level, even connecting with the three loafers in the sitting room, if we connect at that bigger level, all of a sudden we've become bigger, we've dropped our personal agenda, we've dropped our our small limit and we've become bigger. And the large, if we are very big and it's proposed we are, will never be happy with something small. So if that is a law... Happiness will never be found in a personal cup of tea. We'll get the cup of tea, but we won't get the happiness. So are you suggesting altruism then? Well, if that's what altruism is, which is loving your neighbour as yourself, then yes. But you don't have to take my word for it. Try it out. See what happens when you put yourself first. See if it delivers real and lasting happiness. And if it doesn't, try something else. Try what Christ said, love your neighbour as yourself, and see what happens then. It's a fine line between altruism and martyrdom, hey? Well, I mean, I won't get into quoting scripture, but greater love hath no man and so on. I've heard of lots of mothers who would have a mortal dread of dogs standing between their child and a Rottweiler. There's no criticism. They're just doing what needs to be done. It's the love of their child. And I think that's perfect. So they've completely surrendered. Their free will would have been to run a mile and every man for himself. But it could be instinct or it could be love. I would say love is not desire. No, we often confuse them, but they're not the same thing. Desire is very often, I I will love you because it makes me happy, but love would be to love the other for their sake rather than my sake. So you could watch some science fiction movie with himself and not hate it, or I could watch some rom-com chick flick thing with herself and not hate it, because there's no personal agenda. You might find yourself caught unaware sometimes. You're walking somewhere and somebody taps on the shoulder and says, can I have a word? And you have no idea what's going to come next. And you just say yes. What is it? You're not limiting the situation at all. I was on a train once and there was a chap, I think it was probably meant to be the silent carriage where you keep your phone up, but this guy answered his phone about 20 times. But every time he answered the phone, it was, hello there. And it was the happiest hello there. And it just struck me that when I answer my phone, I try to see who the number is. Do I owe them money? Am I late with a report? What's going on? But I have a million agendas. This guy was just totally free when he answered the phone and blissfully happy. Whereas, you know, Important businessman here, completely bound and limited and anything but happy. Very busy and important looking, but you wouldn't describe it as a happy countenance. Is that okay? How do the sages address the hoary old question of predestination and free will in the Christian sense? Well, if you look in the Christian sense, you'll find a case made both for predestination and freedom in the Bible. So you'll have things like the hairs on your head have been counted. And yet you'll have the freedom of choosing right from wrong and good from evil. 
and that we have to suffer the consequences but of the that. ultimate predestination, if somebody, the likes of Judas or somebody like that, did he have a choice? If he was to fulfill the Christian or the biblical prophecy, somebody had to perform that penis act or trail or whatever, and it was this unfortunate creature did it. Now, was he condemned, or this is a hoary old question, was it predestined that he had no choice in that? Yeah, the, the predestination is, is a tricky one when we try to ascribe independent control to Judas or whoever it happens to be, separate from whatever the alternative is. It could be nature or it could be some divine aspect. But it isn't possible for them both to be independent. It just isn't possible. Something has to give. So if you take cause and effect that the world is subject to regulation, all your actions will be subject to these regulations. So whatever you do now will influence what is presented to you in the future and also how you respond. Unless we can identify what his motivation was at the time, we just can't say. I don't know if you can ever say about anybody else whether they have free will. It's really down to you in the moment, whether you choose to go the way of personal agenda or whether to drop that. So if we don't drop the personal agenda, then there is no free will and we are bound by circumstances and events. And we will have no option but to follow a particular course and we'll be railroaded. And we'll be a dead duck for anybody who wants to take a pot shot at us. So that's what the consequence will be if we go down that route. The alternative is to visualize the true will of the absolute and act accordingly in full consideration of the universe, transcending all limitations. And that might be to change the script, go a different route. There was a children's nativity play. A neighbor priest told me he was involved in a primary school and they were running this play. And the nativity play had its rehearsals and all the children practiced and rehearsed and got their lines and got the tea towels out for the clothes and so on. And during the rehearsal, the children all got their, their lines and the roles kind of set up on the stage for the dry run. And one particular chap was the innkeeper who was to turn Mary and Joseph away to say, we've got no room. So this was his line and he read it out and they had to go on to the next and skip the nice hotel or the bed and breakfast and go to the little stable beside. So on the one night that the play was presented, Mary and Joseph came along and knocked on the, the door and said, have you any room? My wife is pregnant and we've nowhere to go. And this little chap, when he looked down at the audience, he said, we've loads of room, come on in. <laughs> so now, I don't know what was going on with them, but he certainly wasn't limited by the script. So it is possible to step outside what we might think our conditioning would direct us towards and to be a, a bigger person than we were the minute before. But I certainly can't say for anybody else, but I, I can only say here, because I know in most cases whether I'm being selfish or selfless. Does that make any sense? It does. And I, as a, when you bring it back to the individual all the time, yeah. yes. But it depends what point of view you're taking. Well, if you're taking the point of view of the individual with the ego, then there's no free will. But if the individual can drop or transcend the ego, then you are free. But it turns out you're free not to do all the desires that the ego had, because they are gone with the ego. You're now free to do whatever needs to be done. It's free without the will. As we can understand, there is no such thing as free will. Because once you say will, it's want and desire, it's personal, it's limited, it's bound. So it is a hoary old chestnut, in a way, but it's a very simple solution. But the problem is we are so caught up in this ego because it's, it's what I've based my life on so far pretty much and I am so reluctant to drop this or challenge it. I've fed it, I've watered it, I've educated it, I've cultivated it, I've nourished it and you want me to drop that now? Who knows what I would do? But that's just it. Who knows what you could do? You could do anything. So do it. Supposing I'm annoyed or angered by somebody and I'm right by them 
and in the heat of the moment, I choose not to be angry because it's what I want to do. As I choose to do it, I will not react to this. I will respond in a calm, integral manner. I'm not doing that for another person. I'm doing it for me so that I can be all I can be and live without the limitation of allowing another to persuade me to act in one way or another. I choose it for me, not for anybody else. So am I wrong then to do something for me if others may indeed gain from it? But I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it so I can be all I can be. I don't know if you can measure it by the gain or the apparent gain, <coughs> because an apparent gain now might mean a, a huge loss. Well, so I else. can live to my potential, say. Well, that would be the idea, that we all live to our fullest potential. Mm. And our, our fullest potential is that we are beyond body, mind and heart. Yes, yes. And that we're pure, perfect and complete. But I'm still doing limited. it for me. But there's no ego there to do any... Once you do that, if you drop that limited ego, there's no ego there to direct events anymore. You're doing what needs to be done. Or yes. Whatever needs need to be met without any personal agenda. No, there is a personal agenda. Well, if there is a personal agenda, then the chances are there is still a trace of ego there. And no. if there's ego, then what the sages tell us is trouble isn't far away. But it's not indeed ego. If you think about it, it's not. Anything that's personal, that's the hallmarks of judgment and preference, would be related to ego. But it's so I can live to my fullest potential, which is what I was born for. Yeah, well, if, if that's where it takes you, to your true potential, then that's fine. But I'm not doing it to save the other person disgrace or shame or whatever he might feel or she might feel. I'm doing it for me. Well, if you're doing it for you, if there's a personal agenda, then I'd suggest it's related to the ego and trouble isn't far away. Well, no, no matter how things may appear, very, very often I would be fuming inside, but I could speak in a fairly calm and collected way. are you doing that for, though? The only person who knows is me. I can't say for you or for anybody no, else. No, I'm asking you. Who are you doing that for? When I get angry? Mm. Oh, for me alone. That's exactly what I'm saying. I do it for me alone. And when I do that, I've lost all my powers and I'm in servitude and I'm at the mercy of all the active people in the world. Yeah, but they don't get to you. Well, they may not appear. I'm, I may still be able to retire to my sitting room with my plasma TV and it, it, to all outward glances, it may look as if they haven't got me, but could be eating me up inside. But then you haven't really accomplished what you wanted to. Okay, well, that's where the test of it is, is what's happening. Mm. Is that okay? Thank, Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Hi. I guess to uh, react to the need, you also have to believe in some way in abundance. Well, in abundance or in the good or in the refined or the better, certainly if we only held to entropy, then we would just try and descend to whatever the lowest depths are. But the proposition is our very nature is already pure, perfect and complete and free. So nothing else will satisfy us. Nothing else will bring happiness. And you get this in lots of scriptural stories and parables. For example, the prodigal son, where everything was fine. He was at home. He had everything he needed. But he wanted it all for himself. So he asked for his inheritance and he goes off and he spends it all, apparently having a good time. But it led to his destruction and he ended up eating with the pigs. But he remembered something. Something stirred in, in him. He remembered his father. He remembered where he came from. And he tried to make his way back there. And his father came to meet him because that was his birthright, if you like. So if that is so, then ultimately evil will never prevail and entropy will never come out on top because there's this desire in us to be happy. And if it's so that the only way we can be truly happy is when we serve others, 
then ultimately that's what we'll end up doing because we won't have find any satisfaction in anything else. And if we don't find satisfaction in it sooner or later, we'll have to try something else. So there'll come a point where we have all the clothes in our wardrobe and all the DVDs and all the games and all the cars and everything, and still there's something missing. Shantananda Saraswati said it quite nicely where he said, in the worldly setup, people go to work to earn wages and they want wages to buy goods and services and they want these for the pleasures that they bring. But wages, goods, or derived pleasures do not bring about the peace of the self. And sooner or later, the inquiry will turn to philosophy, which is inquiring in the love of wisdom, who or what am I? So it's inevitable that that will happen. It's only a matter of time. How long are we going to waste our time with all the trinkets and ego and so on? That's more a question of if there's two alternative needs, which is the greater, which is... So you have to be wide awake to do that. That's a good one. There could be 20 needs. So you go home, you open the door... And who knows what site you, you might be presented with. It could be 20 needs. It can only do one at a time. In terms of the quotation we had here, it is visualize the will of the absolute. There are other things you can do very often if, if we're caught up in things or if we're feeling passionate or angry or something. We might not be thinking clearly, might not have our full power of reason. We can refer it to something else. You know the way a friend could come to you with a big problem and you know straight away what to do because you're not caught up in it. Whereas if you have the same problem, you won't know what to do. That often happens when we get embroiled in something. So one way out of that is to refer it to somebody else. So you could say, what would a wise man or woman do here? What would my father do? In the States, there was this movement where they had WWJD. Children would have this tattooed on their knuckles. You know the way you have love and hate? Well, this was WWJD. It was a kind of a technique intended to help children, if you like, decide between, you know, maybe peer pressure and what was really the right thing to do. And WWJD stood for? What would Jesus do? So all we were doing was trying to take the limit away, if you like, and let the child or the individual refer it to something that was beyond the personal attachment. So referring it to somebody else. So you can do that, but you'll find that there are never two equal needs. There's always one that is most important. So you could say, what is the need right now? So it could be to have a cup of tea, it could be to read the paper, it could be to fix the car, it could be to ring so-and-so, it could be to turn off the tap that's overflowing, it could be to put out the fire, it could be anything. And you can't do them all, you have to pick one. So if you ask the question, what is the need right now? The the will give you the one that needs to be done most of all. And if you do that, then do it again. Now that's done, now what is the need right now? You just have to be wide awake and see what is the greatest need. So... For instance, would you ask yourself, like on a daily basis, what is the need now? And is, is the answer always clear? I do ask myself on a daily basis, but not all the time, every day. Very often I find myself doing something really selfish and stupid and I catch on to it. And then you can ask, what is the need right now? Well, the need is to stop doing this stupid thing and do something useful. It could be as simple as that. But yeah, you can do it every moment. And after a while, the force, if you like, or the power of desire will diminish and it won't be so much of a battle anymore. So the desire for a personal cup of tea or what I want or I always go this way, you know, will diminish. And if somebody else wants to go another way, which is not the way you would go, that's cool. And it doesn't cause any stress to go that way. And the answer is always clear. Well, you do have to do some work. If you practice living a selfish life and staying up really late and watching stupid movies and eating rotten food. And if you live that kind of life and losing your temper, if you like to do that and be critical, if, if that's the sort of life I live, I will find that my powers of reason and discrimination will be very low. So my initial efforts won't be very good, but the good news is that once you start, you get better at it and your powers of discrimination will improve. So you might make a few bad choices early on, 
But the more you practice doing what needs to be done and avoiding the ego and desire, the better you get at it. And the stronger your willpower becomes. So you can resist temptation, which will be good one, and leave you free. Now you can still do it anyway, but it won't be out of temptation. It's good news. Shakespeare said, Dost thou think because thou art virtuous, there shall be no more cakes and ale? You can still do what needs to be done. Sometimes you have to have cakes and ale. (laughs) The neighbours are having a party. Just one simple one I'll ask. What is the need now? Say, forgetting about themselves, thinking of the other person. But what their need might not necessarily be the, the right one either. They're good. Again, it's vigilance and awareness, I suppose, to see what is the right action rather than just thinking of the other person. Yes, and it might not just be the other person. It might be bigger than the other person. I might want to do A and you might want to do B, but for the sake of the family, maybe we ought to do C. It can be difficult, can't it? And it's certainly not easy. But the alternative is going the way of cultivating this magnificent ego. What's it like to have this ego that's only happy when things are one particular way in the world and any other way is torment? What's that like? That can't be easy. Imagine being free to sit on any chair. For example, when you came in this evening, assuming you were in early enough, would you say you were free to sit anywhere? Any chair you like? And having come in for the first half and sat down and you've selected a chair and then you go for the break, what happens when you come back from the break? What if there's somebody else sitting in that chair? It's your chair. Somehow now it's become my chair and I'm unhappy. Can you not see my coat was on the back of it? I even had my little notes underneath. You're in my chair. There's 20 empty chairs. I can't sit there. You're in my chair. So that's what happens when it's identification and attachment and it's torture and it's anything but free and it's certainly not easy. So imagine coming back and being happy to let somebody else sit in your chair and sit somewhere else. Is that freedom? And it's completely transcended the ego. So that's what these wise men and women tell us. They they say that's where the freedom is. And it's true freedom and it's independent freedom like George Bernard Shaw. You couldn't take that all the way though. Let's say you had a car, you had a Jaguar, the other guy had a Mini. And back to the supermarket car park and he's sitting in your Jaguar. (laughs) You know, you got to take his Mini. Well, if this works at all, it should work all the way. It should work all the way. So you need to do what needs to be done. Does he deserve it more than you? <laughs> now, these can be dangerous questions because if he does, what are you going to do? But maybe, for the sake of the community, you can't let people just take somebody else's car. Maybe that's what you need to do. But maybe he needs help. Maybe he needs a lift. Maybe he needs a chat. Maybe anything. You won't know. Get in beside him and see what happens. Probably won't let you. <laughs> yeah, and you just can't tell. I mean, you can't base it on the action. There are countless stories where people do that and the Bloomin' Jaguar blows up halfway down the street or something or you miss a flight and something happens. So you just can't tell by these material things in the world. It's a really, really dangerous yardstick to use. It means nothing, really. A Jaguar isn't going to make you happy any more than a Mini is. So before you can ask these questions, affluence, these philosophical questions might come to your mind. You know, you might be just surviving until the next day. I'm not sure that's true. There's a teacher in the school who takes in the secondary school in this building here that takes a bunch of children out to India every year, and they say the people out there have nothing, and they're as happy as anything. So it may not be related at all to goods, services, or derived pleasures, as Shantananda Saraswati said that these do not bring about the peace of the self. Goods, services, or derived pleasures do not bring about the peace of the self. That could be true. 
If it's true, then where are we going to direct our efforts? So wouldn't it be a responsible thing to do to find out if that's true? Because maybe I have the Mini and I'm working towards a Jaguar and I'm working towards paying off the mortgage and getting a decent pension and doing this. And all my efforts are directed there. If they will not bring about the happiness that I want, what am I doing? They're good questions to ask, aren't they? Just going back to cause and effect, yes. you were saying about it earlier on. Sometimes the cause and effect is reversed. I'm thinking in terms of miracles. Like, why would God interfere with the normal cause and effect? Like, what causes him to interfere with it? Well, I'm not sure that he does. You'd have to start with the presumption that there are these things called miracles which are beyond the ordinary laws in the world. And once that happens, you, you hand it over, if you like, to something like God or the Absolute or something divine. Exert some influence in the creation when it needs to be done. And you will find evidence for that. You'll find, for example, in the Christian tradition, it would suggest that Christ appeared in a certain place at a certain time because it was needed. That the people who had the keys of the kingdom weren't making them available. And that all the wise men, or the supposed wise men at the time, were anything but. The truth was not available to people who were looking for it. So that tradition would say that the Absolute sent a divine incarnation to remind people of what was true. And lots of traditions would have that. Krishna would have been operating under the same effect. There's the element of prayer, which can have a remarkable effect. So to the extent that there would be miracles, I think you'd have to leave it in the hands of God. So he would exercise a, a miracle wherever he sees fit. There might be more than we think, in a way. Sometimes we call something miraculous when we don't see the law behind it or the reason behind it. Somebody could pass an exam that they didn't really study for, you know, where the, just the questions went the right way. But fundamentally, the creation is said to be lawful. And although things happen that appear to be beyond our understanding, I'd be reluctant to say that they're outside the law. There may be some other law operating. For example, the law of gravity, you would think, would keep planes on the ground. But if you work with other laws, you know, that can counteract the effect of gravity, the planes can take off. So I'm sure there are lots of laws, particularly in the subtle realm of mind and heart, that we just haven't a clue about, but they have an effect. It's not to say there aren't any, we just don't know. I mean, if the power of a thought can make you sick, maybe uh, the power of another thought can cure an illness. So we just don't know. Do you think that it is a question of maturing to go from what I want to what I need. Absolutely. Because it came to my mind that it was, as a child, I thought I was the centre of the universe. Yes. And as I matured, I realised I was a very small part of the universe. Yes, indeed. In fact, I think as a child, we sometimes have a taste of the real freedom as well, where we're not bound or attached to anything, and we're genuinely free. One of my children, the middle fellow, I always had a particular problem with. And the way we didn't smack our children, but if they were naughty, we tried to confiscate something they were very fond of. And with the older boy, it was very easy because he loved loads of things. The second fellow, I really struggled to confiscate something that he was attached to because he wasn't really attached to anything. And it left him so free. I could confiscate all his toys and he would still be as happy afterwards. Whereas the older boy, if you confiscate his Nintendo DS... He's devastated for the rest of the day. So I think as children, sometimes we do know what it's like not to be attached to things, even an idea of things. You'll sometimes see children, maybe even helping with washing dishes or something, and they're finished, and they had great fun playing with the bubbles, and they had so much fun, they want to do it all again. And ask them five years later, will you wash the dishes? And they say, why me? So I think there is a time where we do know this, but we very quickly forget. I do agree. We very quickly forget. And it probably is a sign of real maturity, not age now, but real maturity where we can meet the need. 
And when people do that, we think they're magnificent. They're able to stand up and say what needs to be said without thought of what other people think. Martin Luther King, was there a big anniversary this year? He had some great speeches about that, where you don't do what's popular or, or politic, but you do something because it's right, no matter what people think. So I do agree, it is real maturity to meet the need, and ultimately real freedom. So if you surrender your free will, do you have free will or not? <laughs> have I not answered that in the talk? <laughs> it's a good question. I'm partly trying to leave the talk to leave it up to you for your consideration. And certainly what we do all conclude is to the extent that we've got free will, to that extent we're free to respond in the moment. Shantananda Saraswati, who gave that great speech of considering the true will of the absolute, he said that the only thing we're free in is in our attitude. Our attitude, that's what determines how we respond to something. So that's where we're free. But I think the real freedom is in freedom from the ego, because in truth there's no free will. Weiwei Kananda said free will was a contradiction of terms. So every time you've got will, it's not free, because will is always to do with desire, and desire is always mine. And once it's something that is personal to me and mine, it's no longer free, it's bound. And what it's bound to is the ego. So that's why my proposal is, if there is any valid exercise of free will, it's the surrender of this free will, the dropping of the ego. That's the only way to freedom. The freedom is in practicing selflessness and dropping the ego. And then what you do is you end up connecting with your true self or your real self. You end up being the light of the world as Christ describes it. And then the world will unfold as it will. Do you see the transformation to free will as a gradual process? Because I suspect perhaps as we become more aware, more enlightened, then we probably will move in the direction of free will. But I can't see that happening instantly, suddenly. I think it's going to take place over time. And depending very much on where we are as individuals in terms of in our minds and in this world. And so what I'm saying to you, I think is imagine it'll be a gradual process and not a sudden transition. Yes, for the most part I do agree with you. It is a gradual process, but only because we have such habits already built up. We catch ourselves doing things that we've always done, even though we didn't really choose or want to do them. We get caught up in things, and once we're caught up, they're now in control. And that all becomes habitual. And that we've been practicing for a long, long time, and the force of that habit is very strong. So it does take a lot of conscious effort to see that in action, and to not go with it, to ask a different question. The question being, what is the need right now instead of, what do I want, what's in this for me? On the one hand, certainly it can take a lot of undoing, all this habit that has built up. At the same time, I do believe in any given moment, once there's a little bit of consciousness or awareness, that we still can exercise the choice. And every time we elect to do something selfless, as in meet the need rather than selfish, we lessen this power of the habit that's been built up. It's a little bit like if you ever give anything up, whether it's Lent or, or smoking or something else, the first time you say no is unbelievably hard. And the second time, you've now got the confidence that you did it once and you can say no again. And the more you say no or, or don't indulge in whatever it is, the stronger your ability becomes. Is that our experience? Yes, but it also suggests perhaps that maybe both can coexist. They can, yes. They're both there, yes. And whatever way it goes in the end, it still doesn't condemn you the next time. I believe always we have this power or, or this ability. Now, it might take a while, but I believe the only destiny, if you like, for man is this freedom, that there's no future in bondage. It's not a natural place to end up. We can end up stuck there for a long time, but ultimately, I think we will 
whether it's by grace or we will end up with this opportunity to practice selflessness. It might be the last day of our lives, but we might be able to say, I'm sorry, even though we denied something for 50 years. We might be able to say, I'm sorry. Yes, I do agree that they coexist and it's a bit of a struggle between these two. Hence the importance of good company and good friends. And whenever we do have an opportunity to do something or engage in something, it would be better if we engage in things that helped our consciousness, if you like, rather than the ego. Would that make sense to do that? Yeah. Why do you think we're here with such strong egos that we have to battle against all the time? I'm tempted to say I blame the parents, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's probably a reflection of the time that we're living in. It would appear, for the most part, this is a very materialistic consumer society. And we keep buying into this idea that I need this thing to be happy. No longer a 30-inch, I need a 40-inch, I need a 50-inch. Everybody has a 50-inch. We get sucked into this... It's probably a consequence, if you like, of living in a society where those tendencies become the norm. If you look at what the driving forces are at the moment, for the most part it's to do with capitalism and making money and making profit. Now you'll always find organisations who want to help and who want to bring calmness and peace and stability, but for the most part, things that make the big news and the big TV programmes, it's always the other. It's very often the other, and that's what becomes the norm. And to the extent that we're impressionable then we are certainly influenced by these or conditioned by these, and it makes it difficult. But you can break away. You can decide not to do this anymore. There are lots of times, I'm sure, where we've chosen to go a different way rather than the usual habitual way. I remember once I was driving in Canada. I was going over the Rockies, and you go over a mountain, then you're down in a valley, and you can get no radio signal apart from the local town for an hour and a half until you get into the next valley. And whatever valley we were in, it turned out it was a series of of radio interviews with local personalities in the town. I think the day before it was the postman, the day after it was going to be the butcher, today it was the beekeeper. So we were listening to this beekeeper, and he was brilliant. He loved bees and honey, and he spoke about allergies and all kinds of things, and he really loved this topic. And just at the end of the talk, the presenter asked him how long he'd been a beekeeper for. And he said something like, a year and a half. And you would have sworn this guy was like seven-generation beekeeper. And he said, what did you do before? And he said something like he was a nuclear missile impact predictor with NASA. And he got up one day and just couldn't do it anymore. Now, he might have had 30 years doing that job, but he got up one day and couldn't do it anymore. I think that can happen to anybody, where this desire for freedom and to be complete and whole, if we feel limited by the ego, never goes away. I don't believe it ever goes away. So if there's any little chink at all, it will try and make its way out. But to a large extent, it's conditioning Now, I don't think we can blame it. We can't blame the society we're in. Where we all agree there that we have freedom with regard to how we respond to things, well, if this is the society we're in, we have some freedom in how we respond to this and we can choose to go with it or do what needs to be done. So the situation is challenging but not hopeless. So if we're supposed to surrender free will and desire, how does that impact then our desire to plan for future or our desire for how things will pan out, even if it is genuine, wholesome desires like that our children be healthy and happy and secure? And do we surrender all that as well? Well, the proposition here is surrender all your desires and then do what needs to be done. And I think any parent would very quickly, if all desires were surrendered, would look at their children and identify a huge need in the children that they need to be cared for, 
They need their schooling attended to. They need help and assistance. They need some encouragement with regard to friends. They need to participate in the community and clubs and schools. And so all those would be needs. There may well be desires, and sometimes it's a fear where I have a desire and I think it's a desire for something good. If I drop that desire, then nothing will happen. So the alternative is, as Shantananda Saraswati said, is to visualize the true will of the absolute. Now, the true will of the absolute might not be that your son or daughter has no bad marks on his report in school. It might be that he's able to speak his mind freely or to say no when people put him under pressure for something. Maybe he's going to have to address the nation someday. He might need to be prepared for that. So the needs might be enormous, far, far bigger than what my desires might be. But for as long as we hold on to our desires, we won't know what they are. So it is a challenge, and this is a big call to arms here. Visualize the true will of the absolute. So what does my family really need? Well, maybe my family needs exactly what they're getting at the moment, so maybe you need to keep doing that. Maybe it needs a little change here. Maybe you need to move to Alaska. Maybe you need to stay exactly where you are. But the idea is, if you drop the desire, it might be stopping you from meeting the need. The question is, how do you recognize the need? Your intelligence mightn't be developed enough to actually see the need. I think Shantananda here is very compassionate in saying we use our intelligence, whatever our level of intelligence might be. So it might turn out to be a great decision or it might turn out to be a fairly mediocre decision in terms of what my level of judgment. But it appears that's not important. What's important is the motivation, the motive behind it, which is to try and do what needs to be done. And it appears to be the case that that's what's crucially important as opposed to the level, if you like, of the answer and the response. So it might not mean that you have to sell everything and go to wherever the famine is at the moment. It might not mean that, but it might mean that there is something you could do. Very often we think, gosh, it's too big a problem for me. I could never respond to that need. So to whatever my level of understanding and intelligence and judgment is, that's all we're asked to put into practice. So it's not the level of the response at all. It's the motive behind it that is important. I think we will always know whether we're being selfish or not. Maybe 99 times out of 100, we still go with the selfish action anyway because nobody looked after me and nobody else did anything for me and nobody... That's the way we think. And in a way, that's understandable at, at a level, but only to explain that this is the way things are. It doesn't release us from this obligation in the moment because as far as I recall, we all agreed in the moment we're free to respond and we can respond either selflessly or selfishly. Now, it might just be a tiny chink of selfishness. It might be, I'll give you two minutes of my time as opposed to helping you with whatever it is you need to do next week. I'll give you two minutes now and that's it. But that might be enough to shed a little bit of light on it. And next time, it might be two and a half minutes or it might be twice. But I believe there's always a possibility. And the reason it's a possibility is because it is our very nature. Ashtawakra said, you are consciousness absolute. Or as Christ says, you're the light of the world. So you can try and hide your light under the bushel, but eventually there's a little chink and it will get out. So to that degree, that opens the opportunity, if you like, for movement. It shows you the direction and it lets you move. But it's always in dropping the ego. That's always the first step. It seems when we practice selflessness as opposed to desire and selfishness, we end up helping people. There was an American called Robert Ingersoll, and he was an agnostic. He didn't believe in God at all. And he spoke about happiness. He said, the time to be happy is now. The place to be happy is here. And the way to be happy is to make others so. 
there was a Coca-Cola ad out recently and the song, you know they have a jingle to it, the song was Make Someone Happy, Be Happy. This is out there if we hear it. We do pick it up because there are good things going on that we're exposed to as well as all the commercialism. So um, that will have its effect. So I would be eternally optimistic and hopeful. Now, I'm not proposing we all go and drink Coca-Cola. I'm just saying, if you look, you will see these little influences that point the way to an alternative. (laughs) Now, it's probably a conflict of interest for Coca-Cola because I think their motto is that Coca-Cola should be within arm's reach of desire. So for them, it's all about desire. However, they were able to find this catchy song. I think there's some truth in the song. There's no do with Coca-Cola now. I should have said a popular soft drinks manufacturer. They're all the same. Are you happy to leave it there? Thank you very much. Well, thank you all very much and safe home. <laughs>